this last week, privileged to be a part of a class at the Moody Graduate School that was called the Biblical Theology of Missions. As part of the week, we took a field trip to see three ministries in Chicago that are ministering in uh, mission-type settings. One of them was to a, a church ministering to the Mexican community uh, west of Chicago, downtown Chicago, in an area called the Little Village, or La Vallita. In that two-and-a-half-square-mile area, 100,000 Mexicans live. And there's a vibrant church that has been planted there now for several years called the La Vallita Community Church. It is a, a wonderful example of the power of God moving in a whole community as hundreds of people have come to faith in Christ. And as part of that, they, they have a vision of developing their community and doing lots of interesting things go into. As we were driving through that region, though, we crossed some tracks, some railroad tracks, and literally on the other side of the tracks, you enter a new community. It's called the Lawndale Community. As completely as the community to the south is Mexican, the community on the other side of the tracks to the north is African-American. The community on the south is filled with violence and gangs. That is not so in the African-American community on the north. However, there is no love lost between the two communities. Indeed, there's a lot of hatred and hostility between the blacks and the Mexicans there on the west side of Chicago. But in that Lawndale community, there is another church similar to La Vieta Community Church. It's called the Lawndale Community Church. It's been there a number of years longer than the Mexican church. It, too, has a philosophy of developing the community and is doing lots of interesting things and in reaching out to the people in their African-American community. They have, for example, a medical clinic there that has 21 full-time medical people who are functioning just like any other medical clinic in a community, except their services are for the most part free. And every week they are ministering to thousands of people who come through there and sharing the gospel with them. One of the neat things that's happening is that the La Vieta Community Church and the the uh, Lawndale Community Church are beginning to do things together. And our pattern to that whole area of Chicago, what it is like to see people who are one in Jesus Christ, who come out of lots of different kinds of backgrounds. In this particular case, a lot of uh, Latin background and African-American background coming together as one in Jesus Christ, and they're doing things together to show to everyone what kind of hope there is in Christ and the reconciliation that he brings in relationships. And how that though they are very different in many ways, they are still one in him. You know, that was the testimony, that was the witness of the early church as well. And we see that in the city of Corinth, where we're going to be studying for the next several months. As people were brought out of lots of different kinds of backgrounds, as we'll see as we work through the book, but coming out of those diverse backgrounds, they evidence a unity and a oneness, a fellowship in Jesus Christ. And that's what we think about this morning as we turn to the first nine verses of chapter 1. We think about the fellowship that they enjoyed in the God's church. Now, Paul went to the city of Corinth on his second of three missionary journeys. 
While he and his party were in the city of Troas waiting for the Lord to give them direction, he had what is called the Macedonian vision. At night, a man from Macedonia appeared to him in a vision and said, come over and help us. As a result of that, the Apostle Paul left Troas, which is located in Asia Minor, and obviously is on the continent of Asia, and crossed the Aegean Sea into the European continent. It would be nearly impossible to overstate the significance of that little journey and that direction of the gospel in world history. For because the Apostle Paul entered into the Europe with the gospel, the European continent eventually became largely Christian in at least a cultural sense. And that has impacted our own culture 2,000 years later. When the Apostle crossed over the Aegean Sea, he first went to Philippi, and you know the story of what happened there and how he was thrown into jail with Silas. And at midnight, they were singing and praising God, and uh, an earthquake happened, and the jailer came in. He said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that story. But it wasn't long before they left Philippi and went on to the city of Thessalonica, and then to Berea. While they were in Berea, some of the Jews who were violently opposed to them in Thessalonica came to Berea and forced them to move on to Athens. And there Paul stood on Mars Hill and gave that tremendous address in Acts chapter 17. From there he journeyed on westward about 50 miles to the city of Corinth. Now the picture that David presented last week to you was a wonderful picture of what Corinth was like. It was a major commercial center. It had routes that went through it and also had two major ports, one on the Adriatic Sea to the north and another on the Aegean Sea to the east. There was a lot of commerce in this city and people coming and going from all over the then known world. In addition to that, Corinth was a, a religious city and center. It had two patron deities. One of them was Poseidon, who is the god of the sea. In Roman mythology, he's called Neptune. And the other was the goddess that David mentioned last week, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, of sexual, sensual love, called Venus in the Roman mythology. In this city, there was a temple that was very large and dedicated to Aphrodite. The, the worship there was very sensual. There were a thousand prostitutes involved in that pagan worship. And it was so, such a major impact in Corinth that some of the Christians were still dealing years later with the, the, the leftovers in their lives of that sort of worship, and we'll see that as we work through the book. So, so morally corrupt was the culture of Corinth that uh, there was a verb that was made out of the name, and in that day the, the, the verb to Corinthianize meant to live a very sensual, licentious, promiscuous, immoral kind of life. This letter that we're going to be studying was written several years after Paul was there. It was written from the city of Ephesus. The date of the writing is probably 55 or 56 A.D., 
near the end of Paul's three-year stay in the city of Ephesus. It was written because Paul had received some specific questions from people uh, in the city of Corinth related uh, to some of the things happening in the church and how they were to respond to that. The people who brought Paul the questions also delivered their own perspective on things, and out of those perspectives and reports that they delivered, Paul said some additional things. This letter of 1 Corinthians is a letter for our day. It is a letter that is relevant to many of the concerns and issues that we face in our world. The society then worshipped the God of human thinking, Human reason was exalted, and it is so in ours. In that society, they bowed at the altar of sensual pleasure. Sexuality was flaunted, as it is in ours. In that society, they sought the sensational in their experiences. And today, that certainly is the existential kind of philosophy that our culture is following. In addition to that, the church was rather affluent and materialistic. It was desirous of the world's acceptance. It was apostolic in what it believed, but it was conformist in how it behaved. In other words, they said, we believe what the Apostle Paul preached. We believe what Peter preached. But they didn't live like it. They lived like the devil. It was a church, therefore, that was beset by problems. There were divisions in the church. There was carnal living. There was immorality. There was the lack of commitment to marriage. There were disagreements over what Christians can or cannot do related to the cultural practices of the city. There were problems regarding spiritual gifts, not to mention confusion in the church over the doctrine of the resurrection. And so in this epistle, the Apostle Paul is largely intending to correct and to instruct them. But before he corrects them, he commends them. And he reassures them of God's faithfulness to them as a church, despite their questions, despite their confusion, and despite their problems. God is faithful. That's why he's able to give thanks. Not because of the way they were living necessarily, but because God is faithful to his people. So I begin reading in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship through his Son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into, he says. God's church comprises people. People who are imperfect, but nonetheless who are in fellowship. He says, you, you Corinthians, some of you who are living like the devil, some of you who are gossiping and talking behind others' backs, some of you who are picking favorites as to who you're going to follow, whether it's me or Paul, whether it's me or Peter or Paulus or someone else, you people who are confused over what you believe, you who are going to court against one another, he says, all of you, despite all of these things, though you're imperfect, you were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. The word fellowship is koinonia. It means to share in common. To share in common. We're going to find that the idea of fellowship is a key idea in this whole book. They were called into sharing with one another Jesus Christ despite the differences that exist among believers, some of which are legitimate and some of which are sinful, you also, if you believe in Jesus Christ, share important things in common with others. What I want to urge you to do today is to learn to live with your focus on those things that you have in common with others rather than on the differences. Oh, it makes such a difference in how you live. There are some Christians who like to focus on the negative things. They like to pick at the things where there are differences with other believers. And those things become the pivot around which their whole lives revolve. That is not the will of God. There will always be differences among the people of God. Some of them will be legitimate, and some of them will be sinful. But we are called upon to be in fellowship, to share together in common those things that we have in Christ. Therefore, we need to learn to focus on those things that we have in common. What do you share in common with others in God's church? If you and I will learn what those things are and will come to focus on them, then we will truly be in fellowship with the saints. There will still be the distinctives and the differences, but we will be in fellowship because we are focusing on those things that we share in Jesus Christ. What do you share as one who is in fellowship with the saints of God in Jesus Christ? The first thing that Paul seems to talk about in this, this uh, paragraph that we've read is that you share in his grace, verses 1 through 4. Now remember that God's grace is his undeserved kindness that is expressed in some action on your behalf. It is God doing something in your life that you don't deserve. That's his grace. What has he done to show his grace to you? 
Well, the apostle points to three things. First of all, he's called you out. He's called you out. That's the first act of grace. He's called you out of the world to belong to him for some special purpose. In verse 2, he speaks of us as the church. The very name church means the called out ones. Over and over again, you see the word call or calling in these verses. We are called into fellowship. The emphasis is that you and I have been appointed by God's grace to a new relationship. We have been called out by God from our past relationship to the world to be related to God's Son and to be related to one another. Because God has called us out, we therefore have called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. Which comes first, God's calling to us or our calling upon the Lord? Well, the answer is that those two occur quite close together, but the fact is that God's calling comes to us first. Theologians call it the efficacious call of God. It is that call of God that cannot be resisted. It is his work in our hearts to open our eyes to our sin, to make us see our need of Christ. And as a result of that, in an awareness of the gospel that he presses into our minds, we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. We reach out to him. James says in Acts chapter 15, Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. In that brief sentence, he really summarizes all that God is doing in this whole age. God is about the work of, of taking out a people from the world for his name, calling us out to belong to him. Peter puts it this way, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's who you are because God has called you out. My friend, you share that with other believers. That is the work of God's grace in your life. There's a second work the apostle points to besides the fact that God has called us out. He says he set you apart in verse 2. He says to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's what the word sanctified means, to be set apart. We are saints. This sanctifying work of the Spirit is not some secondary work of grace. It is a primary work, and it occurs simultaneously with our calling. The very moment that God called us to faith in Jesus Christ, he also sanctified us or set us apart. He cleansed us and he washed us and set us apart to a new and holy purpose. And that purpose is in Christ Jesus. That speaks to a new identity that we have. We've been set apart to a new identity as those who are in Christ Jesus. No longer in the world, but in Christ Jesus. Jesus. You share that with others in the fellowship. You share God's grace, his grace calling you out, his grace setting you apart. But there is a third act of grace that he points to, and that is again in verse 2, where he says that we have been joined together. 
He's called you out, he's set you apart, and he's joined you together with all who in every place, he says, call upon the name of the Lord. This Lord who is their Lord and ours, this speaks to a new association that we have. Before we were associated with those who are of the world, who were traveling with us on the way to hell, the destiny of all who are ungodly and unbelieving. But God called us out, he set us apart, and now he has joined us together with others in a new association. It is the church of God. Jude points us in the same direction when he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, Paul joins him when he says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. This word common doesn't mean that it's cheap. It means it's something that is shared together. We share it in common. It is a common salvation, a common faith. And so Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. A faith of the same kind as ours. You know, that, that's what's holding that fellowship of those two churches together on the west side of Chicago. Because they see whether they are Mexicans or they're blacks, that in Jesus Christ God has called them out and set them apart and joined them together. And though they may even fellowship in different churches and have different styles of worship which they do, and they may be involved in different sorts of ministry which they are, they are nonetheless joined together because they have received a faith of the same kind. Literally what Peter says there is to the ones having obtained equally precious faith with us. Equally precious faith. It means it's faith that has the same privileges. And so we belong to a new order, and the body, the church of God. So these are the wonderful works of God that we share and which we need to focus on. Because of these works of God's grace, we have a new relationship, we have a new identity, we have a new association that we're a part of. You could summarize all of that in that phrase, the church of God. Now Paul elaborates upon these works of God's grace in the rest of the book, and I hope that you'll join us as we work our way through verse by verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we continue to understand what these things mean that God has done, this new relationship, and this new identity, and the ramifications of it, and the new association what that means, therefore, in our lives. This morning we need to press on to see what else we share in Jesus Christ besides his grace. Paul in verses 5 through 7, first part of verse 7, says that we likewise share in his gifts. In his gifts. He says <clears throat> that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. We share in the gifts of Jesus Christ. 
Now there's some questions I want to ask about these gifts that I hope will help us understand these verses. The first is, what are these gifts? Well, the word gift here is charisma. If you uh, have ever heard the word for grace in the New Testament, charis, you see that it comes right out of that word. These are the grace gifts. They are empowerments that the Spirit of God gives to us to serve Jesus in the body and in our world. The charisma of God, the gifts. It is a grace-given ability to serve the Lord. And he points to two general categories. He talks about those things dealing with speech and those with knowledge. He says, God has gifted you for the preaching of the truth and for the apprehending of the truth. You don't lack anything. Every church has the gifts that it needs in the body. I'm convinced of that. I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, gifts us with what we need. And if there are lack, it's because we are not using those gifts. We are not either coming forward to use them, or we are not serving in areas where we're gifted. God, the Holy Spirit, gives to a church the gifts that it needs to carry out God's purpose and God's will for that church. That's what the gifts are. Well, a second question we might ask is, when are these gifts given? Because we are being told by some these days that we need to ask for the gifts. But here the language says that those gifts came to us at the moment of salvation. He says, you were enriched in him. The tense of that verb points to the past. It says, this happened in the past at one, one time. And so there, at that moment of salvation, God gifted to you and to me what we are able to do in the body of Christ. We receive at that moment our empowerments. We don't have to seek additional gifts. We simply need to discover the gifts that God has already given us inside. Very likely, most of us have not discovered all of those gifts. We need to discover how God has gifted us and use those gifts in the body. They were given to us at the moment of our salvation. And by the way, those gifts that I'm talking about, those are the true wealth of a church. A church is not wealthy because of what it has in the bank or what its annual budget is. A church is not wealthy because of its mission's dollars given. A church is wealthy because of the gifts that God has invested in its people. He points to that when he says, you were enriched in him. You were enriched in him. You were made wealthy, he says literally, in him by the gifts that were given you. And that answers the question where these gifts came from because it says they came to us by him, by Christ. He's the head of the church who sovereignly bestows the gifts as we'll see in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, what's the result of these gifts being given? Verse 6 is an interesting verse. It says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony or the witness concerning Christ was what Paul had preached to them. And he says, the fact that you have received the witness of Christ is authenticated. It's confirmed by the fact you have spiritual gifts. 
what is Paul saying here? He's saying that one of the evidences that a person is genuinely saved is the presence of spiritual gifts in his life. The Spirit of God's presence, his empowerment is obvious because of the gifts that are there. If there are no gifts, then that person is obviously not a believer, is what he's saying. The testimony about Jesus Christ is confirmed in us by the presence of these gifts by which Christ has enriched the body. And so you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, share in the goodness of the Spirit, unless you're not genuinely saved. What this tells us is that even carnal believers have gifts. They may be unused, they may be abused, but even carnal believers have gifts. Paul is excited. He thanks God for this fact that the gifts are evident in them, that they have been enriched, they've been made wealthy, because that shows that his ministry there was genuine, that it was being authenticated by the gifts being present in the church. Now, you share in the gifts of Jesus Christ and his body. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Focus on that. Focus on the fact that you have these empowerments, these abilities. Don't focus on the differences between your gifts and others or your opinions and others, but focus on the fact, look, I'm gifted, and because of my gifts, I have certain perspectives, and I'm going to bring those perspectives to any discussion. But because someone else is gifted differently and has different perspectives, doesn't mean that he's wrong and I'm right or that he's right and I'm wrong, it simply means we're gifted differently. But we share these gifts, and we need each other. Focus on the fact that you share in the gifts of Christ. That brings us to the last thing that Paul focuses on here is what we share in Christ, and that is we share in his glory. Verses 7 and 8 talk about that. You share in the glory that is coming. He speaks about our anticipation of that glory when he talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of Christ coming here as an apocalypse. The word apocalypse means unveiling, the appearing, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The emphasis in Paul's mind is on the visibility of that event. He says, now Christ's glory is veiled. We can't see him, nor can the world, but he says there is a day coming when the veil is going to be taken up and his glory will be manifested. He talks more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he speaks about the rapture. In chapter 2, he speaks about the fact that the Lord of glory has come. He's been crucified through the ignorance of the princes of this world. But what they did in ignorance has resulted in our glory, our glory. We anticipate the glory that will come to us when Jesus returns. He talks about our assurance of this anticipation. He says, who shall confirm you to the end. He says, he will make you stable. He will establish you until God's full purpose is attained in you. And he says, you will be blameless. That is a legal term. In the sight of God, you will be blameless. Literally, the word means you will not be called in. 
You will not be summoned to court. You will not be accused. There will be no legal charge against you in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessed assurance that is. And how these Corinthians need to be reminded of that as they were living, some of them, pretty sinfully. But he thanks God and he wants to point them in the direction of the fact that they have glory coming and that day they're going to be blameless in the sight of God, however blameful they may be at the moment. He thanks God for this. You know, I can thank God for it as well, that we share this glory and one day all of us are going to be perfect in the presence of the Lord. And all the imperfections in the body are going to be gone and we'll be completely without spot and blemish in his presence. And our attitude about that ought to be what, it, what Paul points to here when he says we eagerly await. We eagerly await the appearance of Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I share a glory that is to come. Should not the fact that we're going to share that glory of being blameless in his presence, and the fact that we'll be together forever, should not that cause us to forget our petty differences now and to forgive our grievances that we have against one another here in this world? It certainly ought to. You see how Paul is moving here? Before he corrects them, he wants to commend them. And he does that. He thanks God for them. He thanks God that they are sharers in God's grace. They are sharers in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are sharers in the glory that is to come. What he's doing here is laying the foundation for now how he's going to appeal to them, sometimes very directly and strongly. Paul thanks God for their future. He's not especially grateful for their present condition, but he thanks God for their future. Despite the common things they shared, however, they were a church that was at war. They were at war. But why was that? Because although they were the church of God, and though they were called into the fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus was not really Lord of the lives of many of those people. Five times in these verses we've read, he uses that term, Lord. Four out of the five, he precedes it with that personal preposition, possessive preposition. He says, our Lord, our Lord. But the real question is, were they living under the Lordship of Christ? And the answer is no in many cases. When Jesus Christ is Lord, he corrects our vision. He corrects our vision of ourselves and of others. And when he corrects our vision, our focus then is on what it should be, on those things that matter forever, not the temporal things about which there are differences in the body of Christ. The closing question I have this morning is this. Which is your life focus? Where you differ with other believers or on what you share with others in God's church? I can tell you that if you're focused on those things where you differ with other believers, 
you're probably a pretty unhappy person. And it's evidence that Jesus is not really Lord because he calls us to fellowship. He calls us to focus on those things that we have together in common. So what is your focus today? Are you a positive Christian who sees those things that you share with other believers and you're rejoicing in that? Or are you a negative Christian who's focused on the picky things, the little things that you're grieved about, the little things you're unhappy about, the little things where you differ with others? See, God can't bless that kind of vision. That's why when Jesus is Lord, he's always working on our eyesight. He's always correcting our vision, getting us to refocus, refocus, refocus. And we all need that from time to time, don't we? We just need the Lord continually to correct our vision. Lord, help me to be looking at what I ought to be looking at and not on those little things. Lord, help me to focus on the eternal things, the things that matter. Your grace and what you've done in my life, the gifts that you've given me to serve you in the body, the glory that's coming. Lord, help me to focus on those things that I share with others. When we do that, our lives will be much happier in this world. Jesus Christ will truly be Lord, monitoring our lives, leading our lives, filling our lives, blessing our lives. I wish you could have sensed the joy of some of those people we met this week as we encountered. Um, let me tell you about another man. His name is Sunday. I don't know why he's called Sunday, except he's from Nigeria, and over there there are people called Monday and Friday and Tuesday and I presume he may have been born on Sunday. Sunday and his wife, Grace, have been sent by a mission from Nigeria to Chicago to minister to the 50,000 Nigerians who have immigrated to Chicago, many of whom have never gotten into the culture. We're still isolated and separated out there. Sunday and Grace are just filled with, with joy. Their lives are shining with Jesus. Sunday challenged me so deeply this week as he was asked a very pointed question that he was reluctant to answer. But our professor said, Sunday, tell these people about your prayer life. And he tried to dance around that a little bit. Christians don't dance a lot, but he danced a little bit and he was trying to get around the question. He brought it back and said, no, tell us about your prayer life. And he continues the prayer life that he developed in, in Nigeria. He gets up at 6 in the morning and prays till 8. And then in the afternoon spends at least another hour in prayer. And his comment to us, and this was a challenge to me, he said, I believe that we need to talk to God more about men than we talk to men about God. And he's practicing that. You can just see the, the glory in his face. That's how God wants all of us to live. To be focused on those things that really count. So let's determine by God's grace to walk that way this week. And allow the Lord Jesus to, to, to correct our vision this morning if that needs to happen. To bring our focus back to where it needs to be. Let's pray. Well, may the Holy Spirit just direct each of our response to this message and show us how we need to have our eyes corrected.
of the church at Laodicea was a church that was affluent, materialistic. It thought, had, it, thought it had everything together. And Jesus said, you don't know that you're blind. <laughs> their, their focus was on the wrong things. And he says, you buy of me, I salve. What he was saying was, you need what I have in order to correct your vision. Your eyes are bad. Would you ask the Lord this morning to correct your vision, to bring you back to the things that count, to focus on those things that you share with other believers instead of where you differ with them? For we're called into fellowship. We're called into oneness. We're called to love each other. Now, Lord Jesus, I pray that that will be our focus. And even as we sing this closing chorus, I pray that you will help us in our hearts to do business with you that will make a difference in how we see things this week. Amen. Together, please. Let's stand and we'll sing together. We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirit with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. I'm going to ask you just to grab a hand of someone who's by you. Reach across the aisles, if you will. And we'll sing it together. Let us sing now, everyone. Let us feel his love begun. Let us join our hands that the world will know. We are one in the bond of love. Amen. We are dismissed.